hands. Can I welcome everybody on behalf of um, the Open University and Health and Social Care? I know that we've got people here from Birmingham, we've got people here from London, and we've got people here from the Open University who we never see each other. So it's really nice to, you know, to have such a nice group. So thanks everybody for coming. And I should say, I'm Jenny Douglas. <laughs> I'm a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Health and Social Care, and I've been at the OU for quite a while. And black women's health has become my passion, actually, so, for all sorts of reasons. Can I introduce you to my colleague Naomi? Naomi Watson is also in the Faculty of Health and Social Care. And um, can I hand over to you now? Okay, thanks. Yeah, okay. Hi, everyone. Nice to have you here. Um, I'm not going to say an awful lot about me, except that I work here. Jenny and I work um, together sometimes. But I want to introduce you to Professor Laura Surratt-Green, who's going to be speaking to us uh, for this seminar. Now, um, she's coming to us from School of Health and Wellbeing, University of Wolverhampton, where she's currently uh, Professor of Community and Public Health Nursing, She's also Director of Research and Enterprise in the Centre for Health and Social Care Improvement. In addition, she's a visiting professor at the University of the West Indies, and she's an adjunct member of the Faculty of the University of Alberta in Canada. She's non-executive director of the Heart of England NHS Trust, and she's a member of Involve, which is um, the organisation that works for effective user engagement in research. So she's she's, uh, involved with, with that group. Now, Laura has received a number of awards based around her research interest in sexual health and ethnicity. And I believe, Laura, you started off with, as a Seacole scholar, did you not? I did. Yes. That's, I thought that, yeah. She's also been an editor of the Nurse Researcher Journal. She was appointed to the Prime Minister's Commission for the Review of Nursing and Midwifery by the Department of Health in 2010. And she also sat on the independent advisory group to the UK government on BME issues relating to sexual health. Uh, And that informed the development of the national strategy for sexual health and HIV in England. You can see Laura's a very busy lady. Okay, so uh, Laura, I'd just like to sort of say welcome to the Open University and thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come and talk to us today. Over to you. Okay, it's a pleasure. Thank you for that. Thanks, Naomi. And thanks, uh, Jenny, for talking me, not, I won't say talking me into doing this because I didn't take a lot of talking into it, but inviting me here to to do this today. Um, And thanks for everybody for taking time out of your schedule to come and hopefully not just listen to what I have to say, but also to debate and challenge because that's the nature of how we learn and how we engage and how we get to know each other. This presentation I'm going to do today, um, I'm not going to talk too much about it as a a pull-in, but really just to set the scene for you. Um, It's really important to me that I'm doing this presentation now, one more day left in Black History Month before we all forget everything for another year. Um, And it's also important that this is around women's health. You heard from um, Naomi and from uh, Jenny that working around community and public health is kind of what, what I do. A lot of my work has been around sexual health and sexual reproductive health. And atypically, most of my work in sexual health has been around men rather than women. Because it it is one of the areas in which men actually are in the minority in terms of investigation, in terms of clinical skills, in terms of services, etc. And it's very interesting to me as to why in all spheres men come first, but in this sphere, 
they actually don't even come second, third, etc. So that is that is very interesting. So it's important to me to have the platform of health. It's important to me to be doing it in Black History Month. And it's important to me to be doing it to people who are ready and able to engage with me on, on different platforms. A couple of things that I would also like to hi uh, highlight to you. As you can see, I'm wearing my Creole cloth. And my family are from Dominica in the West Indies, which I always feel I have to say because we're small islanders. We're probably the smallest of the small islanders, you know. So if there's any mother Dominicans in the room, ukapale patwa. That's it. How many smallies are here? Thank goodness it's not just me, you know. I often do this and the room is full of Jamaicans and Barbadians, my fellow country people, and they all look at me blankly. Yeah, but anyway, that, that's no question. So this week, as you will know, was Creole Day in Dominica. So hence, this is my, my Creole cloth that I'm wearing today, okay? Um, which I have to do because otherwise my mother will never forgive me. So um, that's really important, though, because it, it kind of forms the basis of some of the things that I'm going to talk about. The importance of personal, of shared and community identity to our health and well-being. I think it's really important that wherever, whatever platform we're looking on, whether it's personal, whether it's professional, and whether it's communal, that we have to have a sense of where we came from to know where we are and where we're going. And I repeat that constantly to my students, to people I work with, to my family and friends. You have to know where you've been just to know where you're moving on from. And that is an important thing to remember. This presentation will be a mixture of professionalism. You know, there are references to all the things that I've quoted. All sources are identified where, where they need to be. But it's also personal because it's quite difficult for me to talk about health and particularly black women's health standing here as a black woman and do that objectively. So there's a bit of me in there as well, but that's kind of the way I, I, I speak. And I'm hoping that you'll be able to engage and there'll be a bit of you in this too. I'd like to highlight for you a couple of books. And the reason I'm doing this is because these books are the ones that actually have steered me professionally and personally in my work. And they're also books where there will be references to them in the presentation. They're quite popular. They're not hidden. Some of them, hopefully, you, you may have read yourself. And if you haven't, I would recommend them to you. The first one was a book that was picked up for me, given as a gift, when a friend of mine went to South Africa and it's Stuart's Quotable African Women. And this has many quotes from African women who are, and women of African origin, whether they were based in Africa or whether they're based in elsewhere in the world, talking about life, the universe, and everything. The second book that influenced me actually was one that I read quite early on when I was relatively young and still at school, and then I reread 30 years later. And it, I read it completely differently. And this is by the late Baby Moore Campbell, for those of you who, who know her. She, unfortunately, she relatively recently died at a very young age. Baby Moore Campbell's book, Your Blues Ain't Like Mine. This book, has a it, although it's a novel, has a lot of references to issues around health and well-being, particularly in the States and particularly for black and minority communities at that time. Baby Moore Campbell's title, Your Blues Ain't Like Mine, again is a thread that runs through this presentation. Because what I'm going to focus on is the ways in which black women's health, well-being and health chances are similar sometimes to other women, but sometimes notoriously different. And that again 
it points us back to the importance of knowing yourself. The third book, some of you may not have, have seen. This is not a book written by a black woman. This is a book written by a white woman and who finished writing it only a couple of months before her death, which was unexpected. So she didn't write it at a time knowing her life was ending. She wrote it at a time where she thought, now it's time to think about me. And it was published by her daughter later on. And this is a very small book called When I Loved Myself Enough. And it's by Kim McMillan. And it's, it's produced with Alison McMillan, who is her daughter. Very simple book with very simple phrases. And there are a couple of phrases from the book in the presentation. And when we get to the end, I'll hopefully end with something from this book for you. The final book that I'm going to highlight for you, which isn't spoken about directly in the presentation, but which has informed my professional work and continues to push me forward to achieve whatever I need to achieve, is actually going, is actually going to be for sale for everybody at the back if you wish to buy a copy. This is a book, it's a short history of Mary Seacole. Mary Seacole, the Jamaican doctress who worked in the Crimean War and who worked on the battlefield. Or in everyday speak today, she was on the front line, literally. This book is actually written as a resource for nurses and for students. And I think it's really not only important for health and social care, but also for people themselves who are interested in the ways in which her work has advanced nursing and healthcare and her work also advanced the position of black women. The sales of this book are not for me. It's going towards the Mary Seacole Memorial Statue Appeal, which uh, Professor Elizabeth Anionwu is uh, forwarding. So all the proceeds from this book go to directly to the Statue Appeal. There's the book, and then there's also a postcard, which was a postcard, a picture of Mary Seacole looking straight into a camera. This was discovered, I think it was in Winchester College, in part of the, in Oxford and Cambridge group, and it was discovered not that long ago, and it was bequeathed by the college to the Statue Appeal for sale so that they can raise money. And the po I've got some of the postcards as well, they're just a pound. So, these women, from a whole range of reasons, have influenced what I'm going to talk about you today. So let's uh, move on. I'm quite happy for people to discuss and raise questions as we go along or to wait till the end. I'm happy with that. The first reference point in this must be to Fanny Lou Hamer. For those of you who don't know, as um, Jenny alluded to, Fanny Lou Hamer was an American civil rights activist. This was a woman who lived, breathed, and spoke about the trials and tribulations of keeping moving. Keeping moving despite whatever happened. Fanny Lou Hamer in 1964 in one of her infamous speeches, said, all my life I've been sick and tired. Now I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And her words have inspired the presentation today. In her lifetime, Fanny Lou Hamer was sterilised against her will. She was beaten almost to the point of death and took years to recover from it as a result of her activist movements. Everything was done to stop her voting, to stop her going to places where other people went, and to stop her speaking out. 
And even from within her own community, they were not keen for her to speak out. In today's parlance, we might say she was putting the business in the street. And as we know now, that's not always welcomed, even when people agree with the reasoning and the things that you're trying to achieve. So this is where my presentation starts, with a woman who actually identified herself quite clearly of where she's been, recognised the hardships that she had, but also used that to educate not just people external to her community, but within her community of the importance of health, of well-being, and of striving forward at every point. So, this is my opening statement for the presentation. And it's really a reflective point that I was thinking about before Jenny asked me to do this. Why is it that in this time when we have clear evidence of risk about personal care and social opportunities, why is it that black and minority ethnic women worldwide are still falling behind in measures of well-being? Why is that? And this is what I hope we can look at today. This is me, in case you don't recognise me. This is me at work. And the question is, are we as black women guilty as charged? If we are charged with, with, the, with the challenge that we are succeeding in education and in the marketplace, black women own businesses, black women as entrepreneurs, black women as educational leaders are on the rise and have been for years. But yet at the same time, we are failing and losing the battle of our health. Are we guilty that we are forward in one aspect of ourselves while negating and ignoring the other? And this is the thing that hopefully we can reflect on. For myself, I am one of seven children. I am the middle child of seven children. As a Dominican, I have a very important position because I'm the eldest girl. There are three boys before me and there are three girls after me. So when you're in the middle and you read all the sociology books about being the middle child, I'm only the middle in terms of sequence. But in Dominica, I'm the eldest. So although my, brother is six, my eldest brother is six years my senior, he has to ask me what happens because I'm the eldest. And as I grew up, lots and lots of times, I'd say, but why do I have to do it? Because you're the eldest. In the Dominican context, that's understood, and the Caribbean context, it's well understood. But when that comes to a UK context, people don't under, quite understand that, because you've got three older brothers. Yeah, but I'm the eldest. And that position means that in my family, I also have responsibility for the health and well-being of everybody else. When my mother passed 15 years ago, I became queen, literally. And some of you might be thinking, but you said that your mother was going to tell you off. How can she be she passed? Just because you pass in a black family doesn't mean that you're not there steering the boat. And that's quite clearly very important and very important to some of the issues that have both helped us as black women in terms of health, but also hindered us in terms of taking initiatives and challenges. So that's me. So am I guilty as charged? 
educationally doing very well, in the marketplace doing okay, but how's my health? That's the marker that I have to steer. So today what I want to do is just present to you a platform for some debate and discussion around the issues of blame, risk and responsibility for black women for their own predicament. How much are we victims of our own success? How much are we victims of circumstance? How much are we the people who steer our own course? And we are exactly where we have put ourselves. They are the things that we hopefully will be able to talk about. Nancy Sidderman was on MB, uh, NSBC in 2007. And one of the things that she said in her, in her interview then, which struck me at the time, was that black women have an increased risk of mortality than any other ethnic group for almost every other major cause of death. Now, when she said that, I thought, that can't be true. That can't be right. We must be better at something in terms of health. But when I looked, and she was talking about black women in the, broad, in the broadest sense of women whose skin colour is not white. That was what she was talking about. And when you look across the world and you look across the global issues, and what I found was, actually, overall, she was right. That when you looked in different countries, you looked at what the major causes of death or morbidity or poor life chances were, that in every country that I looked at, along the major challenges that black and minority ethnic women came off worse, even where they were in the majority in that country. So are we guilty as charged? How has this come about? In this book that I identified for you, When I Loved Myself Enough is the start of every page, and there is, there is a sentence or a paragraph on each page. So I start this presentation looking at the evidence with this. When I loved myself enough, I quit ignoring and tolerating my pain. And I think that's a reflective point for everybody. I know when I grew up, I think one of the things I remember hearing, hearing it to the point where it just became almost background noise, was when my mother got up and she went, oh, are you all right, mum? I'm all right. It's okay. I never heard my dad say that. When my dad got up, it was, oh, my foot, my back. Oh, this is it. Oh, oh just get me a drink, you know. Oh, I feel tired. I'm tired. <coughs> and that's not to say one was worse than the other. They just expressed it differently. And what happened was my mum got up. She made a couple of little limps before she got up until she was straight. And then she kept on walking. If we look at the data in the USA, minority ethnic women continue to lag five years behind white women in life expectancy. And that is across every group in terms of whether you look across educationally, economically, or you look across class. And this, so these are comparing women in the same social groups. Okay. About one in four black women over 55 in the US has diabetes. And 
the prevalence rates for diabetes in these groups are two to four times higher among black, Hispanic, American Indian and Asian Pacific Islander women as it is among white women. The reason that I bring that in there is to show that this is not simply an issue of women of African-American origin or African-Caribbean origin versus women who are not of that origin. This is an issue about women from different minority groups faring worse as we go across platform to different degrees. And these are women who have different cultures, different language, different expectations. So it isn't a thing that's simply based on one particular group. And we need to remember that. In America, and actually in parts of the UK, depending on which cancer you look at, but in America specifically, irrespective of the cancers you look at, again, we're looking at people with, from the same peer groups. Black people and poorer people are much more likely to die from cancer. Now, there's a whole range of reasons for that, from late presentation to hidden diagnosis to also culturally discounting what are early warning signs to being able to afford services to the availability. There's a whole range of reasons that why that is. And again, we can argue and we can debate those things. But the outcome is that they're more likely to die. And again, sticking with the US, we can look at other conditions which are not life-threatening so much, but may well be life-limiting. High blood pressure, lupus, and HIV and AIDS disproportionately affect BME women. In some states of the US, HIV and AIDS-related diseases are the number one killer of black women. Now, if you think about that in terms of the other things that you could riskily get with, with HIV and AIDS, that's quite astonishing to me that that which is a minority illness in the whole bank of illnesses you can get is actually the thing that's most likely to kill you. We're back to baby Moore Campbell. So I ask the question then, are your blues like mine? The things that get you down, how you feel. When someone says, how are you feeling? Are you the, I'm okay, or are you the, you know what, this hurts today? How do we measure good health? What is our expectations of well-being? You need to ask yourselves, how are your blues? Everybody has blues. My mother used to say, if you're not never down, how do you know when you're up? Okay. If we look at data according to the, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Pre Prevention in the States, which is where they monitor illness, public health challenges, illness, morbidity, causes of death, how people live their lives. They actually identify that somebody's self-assessment of their own well-being is a really good indicator about their health and well-being. So we're not measuring pain because we can measure accurately degrees of pain as a measurement of muscle twitch or a measurement of pain receptor. But how that pain feels is very subjective. So we can't say, right, we'll have this much pain, therefore we'll all be in this much pain. So we have to use kind of people's own assessment of how they are feeling today. We all know it's well known that the same in incidence has a different impact on people, depending on where you are, what day of the week it is, which way the wind's blowing whether you manage to get into your skinny jeans, whether you look good in your clothes, all those things affect the pain that you have. 
Anybody who, like me, has been blessed enough to go through childbirth three times, obviously I didn't work out what was causing it the first two times, was we'll find that each one was different. There was no case of, I've done this before, so therefore I know how it's going to be. It was different. And that was depending on my age, my mood, you know, the brightness of the lights, how much they let me walk around. All those things affected me. So let's look at health and well-being and how women measure their own health. When asked about health status, that is, how are you feeling today? The reports and the, the mechanisms from the CDC found, and you can look these up on their website, that black and minority women are more likely to characterise their health status as fair. I'm okay. Nearly 17% of Hispanic women are the, tested on the same basis and asked the same questions, and 15% of black women say they are in fair or poor health compared to 11% of white women. Again, women from the same groups in the same areas, living in the same conditions. Of course, that raises the question to us. Is it that for us, okay is good? Is it more of a measure of our expectation than it is of actually what's happening? Is that a, is that a reflection of the, how we express good health? How we express that we're having a good time? We all know, those of you who are from, I won't say just the small islands, I'll let you biggies come in too, right? Okay. We all know that the face tells a thousand pictures. As a small child, growing up in a Dominican household where both my parents spoke Patois Creole, I didn't actually realise it was that till I went to school and we did French and I was thinking, but that's like what my mum and dad speak, similar. I didn't, realize that he, I didn't even realise that other people's parents only spoke English until I once went to tea at um, a, a friend's house, two doors up the road. And I went to tea at her house and her mum and dad were speaking English and I said to her, it's okay, your mum and dad can speak their own language when I'm here, I don't mind. <laughs> and that was because all my other friends were Indian. And although their parents spoke a different language to mine, they also spoke another language at home, so I thought that was normal. Okay. What I learned in that household was to read facial expressions. If I did this to you, you see, you know what that means. I don't have to explain that. And so if someone said, are you all right? I'm all right. That's completely different from, I'm all right. Okay. So maybe for me, looking at this is, maybe it's just the way what we, you know, did they have an expression, you know, was there a lip movement that came with that fair and okay? Was there a shoulder shrug? All those things make a difference. But it also gives a view of how we're expressing ourselves in terms of our health and well-being. Sometimes to feel better, all we need to do is do the lip movement or the shoulder shrug or cut the eyes. All those things make a difference, but they're part of who we are, which is not necessarily captured when we look at the data. But that doesn't mean we ignore this. We still have to take this into account. I thought we'd have a look at compared to men. Compared to men, women of all races are more likely to grade their health and well-being as fair or poor. The men believe they're having a much better time in terms of health. Maybe they are happier with where they are. Maybe they express their well-being differently. I don't know. But when we look at the measures that we're looking at, and we look at how people are looking at those measures externally and how we're seeing ourselves reflected back, the picture 
is quite a difficult one to live with. Interesting enough, but perhaps not a surprise, married women fare worse than single women in self-reported quality of life indicators. And that's across all racial groups too. Interestingly, just for a comparison, married men fare better than single men when they look at their reported quality of life. And this has been like this for decades. This isn't new news. So again, we have to think about where we place ourselves in health and well-being and how we express that. And what is it that's happening that means that we are expressing it less? Does that mean we're feeling it less? Does it mean we're doing less to make ourselves happy? Does it mean that we are doing less to deal with, as I said before, the pain and the things that we live with as the everyday? In the West Indies, and particularly in Dominica, this is a good-looking woman. She's walking straight, she's strong, she's got strength. She's carrying a bag, she's pulling another trolley behind her. Things are looking good. She's got the sun on her back. Even without seeing her face, we can say this is not somebody bowed down by their burdens. Going with this picture is the situation in the UK. Among black Caribbean men and women, diabetes is relatively high. If you look at the comparisons, in men and women, uh, it's 10 and 8% relatively, compared with the general population of 4 and 3%. So it's almost two and a half times. In fact, it's two and a half times in each group. Why is that? Interestingly, again, the findings looking at health indicators in the UK also show that among ethnic minority groups, obesity, as it's classified in a clinical sense, doesn't seem to have the same clear association with the health conditions. So, for example, if you take someone with a BMI index of a certain amount, you know, over 25 or 30, they don't necessarily, in BME communities, all show the same he negative health outcomes that you see in indigenous populations or in UK white British populations with the same BMI. So it doesn't always translate. Now, what that does is that actually brings us a confused picture. There's obviously evidence to suggest that some of the, as we know now, that some of the indicators and some of the charts that we use to measure or indicate BMI are Eurocentric. We have a difference in bone density, which makes you heavier. Similarly, there are people, if you look at Chinese populations who have a lower bone density and are generally much lighter frames, they very rarely come out as obese, irrespective of what you see within your eye, with your eyes and the health risks, the charts don't work. So that could be a reason for this. There's also an impact in terms of walking. There's much more of a cultural acceptance of walking places rather than always driving. This is something that's changing as generations go. But big people, as we call them in the Caribbean, walk. So the young lady we see in the picture, she's big, but she's up and she's walking and she's doing now, that may be driven by economy, that may be driven by location, it may just be driven by whether or not you've got a car, whether or not you actually can afford to take taxes everywhere. It can be driven by lots of things. There are a few interesting studies now that you can look at which have looked at generational differences. And what we're finding is as we get to fourth, fifth generation, the, the, the gap between 
BME health and white health is growing, is growing narrower. Unfortunately, it's not that BME health is getting better, it's that white population health is getting worse. Okay. The final point I have on here is not a misspelling, and I'm sure all of you know that. So what we have in the Caribbean particularly is that fat women, pretty hot and thick, are revered as a sign of good, being good-looking. That's a, a good-looking woman. Every time I go to, to Dominica and they say to me, you're looking good, I'm thinking, oh, grief. <laughs> <laughs> Better get back to the gym then. Right, okay. So, you know, and we have, we have other customs which, which some of you may know or not know. Like, people have this thing about pinching your skin, feeling your belly. You're looking good. Ooh. You know, they pinch, come, let me pinch you. That's normal. Get off, yes. That will get you in trouble, yes. And they feel you because that's good. You're strong. You know, you've got some meat on you. You look like, you look like somebody, as my mum would say. When I first went to um, Dominica, when I was doing my nurse training, I'd not been there for a long time. And I went, um, when I was doing my nurse training, I was, I was uh, 20, so it was just before I finished. And I was very thin. I was just one of those gangly, thin people, you know. I wasn't quite marga, but I didn't look, you know, I, wasn't, I definitely wasn't fat in the pH sense. And I remember going to the West Indies, and it's the first time ever. Being, I was born in the UK, although, although, as I said, both my parents spoke Creole, so I speak Creole fluently. And when I went there, first time I went there as, a, as, a, as what I thought was a woman, as opposed to a child. And I was thin, I was slim, I was looking good, you know, I was ready to... First time I'd ever been to a dance and nobody asked me to dance because they all thought I was sick because I was far too thin. And I even had young men come up to me and say, what's up with you? Because I was too thin. Which brings us another thing about being well. Being well is associated with weight. It's associated with having some meat on you. Um, the fact that I was proud after my second child that I managed to get back to my pre-baby weight without any trouble and still eating my food. Um, went to the West Indies to show them the new baby and myself. They looked at the baby, they were all worried about me. She's still thin. I thought she was a mother now, because again, a different view of wellness, of what looks to look good. I spent four weeks with people feeding me hard food at every hand and turn because they were determined that I had to put on a stone before I left. That was the norm. And all this is about a sense of well-being, which is not just physical, it's mental, it's social. It's about feeding and raising you to be. And as the lead head of the family, I had to be a big woman. Okay. I've kind of worked that, worked, worked that one down a little bit. At the same time, however, we're fighting to control the fat, F-A-T, that's affecting our lives and our health. So we've got this balance that we're doing. Wellness and well-being, P-A-H-T, ill health, poor health, FAT, two kinds of fat. As you reflect on your own well-being, are you fat or are you fat? What do you see? Back to Dominica. This is the beach near St. Joseph where my family are from. Okay. This is Miro Beach for those of you who know Dominica. My family are from St. Joseph, which is even more front line than the front line. I think it's like, you know, if I was, if, if St. Joseph, if Dominica was in London, this would be Brixton, St. Joseph. Okay. 
If it was in Nottingham, where I grew up, it would be the Meadows. Okay? If it was in Liverpool, it would be Toxteth. It's not really that bad, but it's all relative to where you are. All your St. Joe people. Mm. And the reason I show this here, not just to show you the nice beach, even though the sand's black, as you can see, is really the, the importance of family ties to this. That family ties are a key part for black women and for all black families, but particularly for women in terms of position, in terms of well-being and in terms of health. Because where we're brought up is that the health is the unit of the family. As we move to different structures that have a different cultural base, where the unit of the family over years is more dispersed, it's more singular, it's less united then you can correlate the reduction in our well-being. And this is not just a Caribbean thing. You see the similar things in migrant populations from India, from China, from all over. And you see the same thing from white British population. Years ago, 30s and 40s, the family unit, the community was a key part of health. Not just looking out for each other, but pooling resources to ensure the health and well-being of everybody. People rarely lived more than two streets away from a family member, mother, grandmother, auntie. So the things that united health socially, culturally and emotionally was a, unit, a family tie. And so it's important to think about that when we're thinking how much are we, as black women in this person, but how much are we to blame for our poor health. Once we stop unitizing health around weight and physical, but around the whole aspect of social, emotional, cultural health, which supports the physical health that we try and live to. I've got a few slides now just looking at very specific areas of health that are, that are related to women particularly. Maternity. In the United States, there are an average of 11 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. Okay, so it's 11, every 100,000 live births, there's about 11 maternal deaths. In Austria, there are four per 100,000. Denmark, there are five. If we move to areas such as Mexico, we go up to 83. If we go to Haiti, there is 680 maternal deaths per 100,000. Now, if you, start th if you start off from a base of thinking that childbirth is the same process in every female, you have to start thinking, what is it about where you live, where you are, that impacts on your health chances and that of your child? Let's move to Afghanistan constantly in the news at the moment and has been for years because of all the conflicts that's ravaged over the period of time. In 2002, which was the last time they were able to do a full survey of maternal health, there was 1,600 maternal deaths per 100,000. So you see again, when people talk about how we look at our own health, how we as women protect our health and in our position, the health of the next generation, where we are and the situations we're in make a big impact. In that survey, the most common causes of death, maternal death, were found to be hemorrhage and obstructed delivery. 
and they, the majority of them were preventable deaths. So there weren't things coming out of the blue that no matter where you were, it wouldn't have made a difference. These are things that could have been averted or managed with having skilled healthcare practice to support you. That's important when we look at and we start to think about how much women and black women particularly and black minority ethnic women are to blame or the risks we take, the responsibilities we have around our health and the health of others. There's a PS on that survey. The same study found that if the child of the deceased mother lived, they only had a one in four chance of living beyond the age of one. So the impact was not just on the woman herself, but also the next generation. So we see the importance of knowing yourself, knowing place or recognising the roles that women have and the importance of maintaining their health, not just for themselves, but also for the next generation. You'll see that many of the health education um, and health promotion campaigns that we have try and focus not just on the pregnant woman and her own health, but also the risks to the baby. And that's because what we find is, particularly with women, is if you appeal to the impact of their health on their family, on the children, on somebody else, they're actually better responders. That's a good thing for planning a health education campaign. But my question is, what about the woman herself? Go back to the quote that I started this bit with. When I loved myself enough, I stopped ignoring the pain and minimising it. Let's go to the menopause, place where some of us are closer than others. Some of us have passed that particular thing. She says, try not to look at anyone in particular. And some yet have that blessing to be bestowed. Dr. Unik Om Im, who's a professor of nursing in, in the US, she made a study of menopause and actually looked at a range of women, white, African-American, Hispanic and Asian women, their experiences of the physical and the attitudes towards menopause. What she found overall was the white women more likely to complain of menopausal symptoms. Now, when I say that, I don't mean that they were all whinging and moaning, but they were more likely to be honest, honestly say, this is what's happening to me and this is how it makes me feel and I actually don't like it. Okay. There were 41 symptoms that she listed, some of them physical, some of them social, some of them emotional, some of them just in terms of how it impacted on your daily life. Okay. And the white women mentioned 31 of the most frequent symptoms out of 41. They talked about, and the, the ones listed here are the ones that on the main, the black and minority women didn't mention. They didn't mention neck and skull aches, feeling like your head was in a vice, feeling like your neck was aching, you couldn't hardly hold it up. They didn't mention racing heartbeat, ankle swelling, exhaustion, difficulty sleeping, having to get up every night constantly to go to the loo, feeling clumsy, depression, anxiousness, difficulty concentrating, or grouchiness. Most of the minority ethnic women, particularly the black African, black Caribbean women said, I'm all right. Even though objectively they were actually experiencing the same symptoms. Now you can look at that both ways, but you think about it. 
How then is that more likely to be reacted to if you're looking for help, for support, for a day off, just to rest down five minutes? How likely is that to happen? We're not talking here necessarily about extremes that need clinical intervention. We're talking about the everyday support. Interestingly, these are two quotes from um, black, black women in that survey. We're always expected to be strong women who aren't supposed to whine about anything. You just take life as it comes and do what you have to do. If you're having troubles or problems, you should just pray about it and keep going. I don't think my culture believes that menopausal symptoms are something that you would run to the doctor. The women very much saw that they either put up with, it was normal life, you put up with it, or you, or you ran to the doctor if it was bad enough. There was no in-between. It was what, you either put up with it or you go to the doctor. And it's not that bad to go to the doctor. But where the majority of the women lived their menopause was in the mid-ground, with the neck aches and the grouchiness and the tiredness and the sweating and the getting up in the night and the tossing and turning, the changing sheets. They lived with that as the norm. And in the morning, or the next day, they expected to be well. Because this was a passing thing. This passing thing that for women on average can last anywhere between five and ten years. Five or ten years of just making do. In terms of physical and mental well-being, looking at other conditions, conditions which are not about reproductive life, there's a study that was done um, which actually showed that female and black stroke patients, remember we've got higher blood pressure, more risk of stroke, much more likely, they are less likely to receive preventative care for subsequent strokes. So they, got, they had a stroke, they got treated, then they went home about the business. They were less likely to have care or preventative work to prevent one happening again unless they asked for it. In this study, in Turim's study, they, did, they looked at 501 patients who, were, who had been hospitalised for stroke. And 66% of the women and 77% of the people from black minority ethnic groups, both men and women, received incomplete patient evaluations. And that's your evaluation of your risk to have another stroke or what you need to prevent one, compared to 54% of men and 54% of white people. Some of you may have heard of the Count Me In Census, which is periodically done in the UK. Count Me In Census was actually looking at including broader voices, um, black and minority ethnic, and also people with disabilities voices into work. It, it's linked in with some of the work in involved uh, around using service users and, and communities' voice on research. The 2005 Count Me In Census showed that women from black and mixed, mixed white and black groups were two or more, at least twice as likely to be admitted to a psychiatric hospital. Unfortunately, the same survey conducted in 2009 showed that not much had actually changed. Despite all the mental health acts, despite all the equality acts, nothing really had changed in terms of your likelihood of being admitted to psychiatric hospital. The other thing that I thought I'd have a look at is what about quality of life post-stroke? And this is all about how people report their health. We're still about what people say is happening to them. We're not looking at physiological measurements. We're talking about how people's experiences are. And what you find is that 
if you look at research around women after stroke, that they, they report themselves that their quality of life is worse. A Swedish study which looked at men and women, again, just as a comparable to look at, showed that female stroke patients had much lower scores in terms of quality of life than men in five out of six of the categories in terms of quality of life that we looked at. And the, way, the areas where women reported worse quality of life were in terms of emotional well-being, sleep, energy, pain and mobility. And when they were asked what caused them the most anxiety after their stroke, the women talked about housekeeping, family responsibilities and leisure activities, mainly with the family. Men reported anxiety about sex. I'm not even going to go into detail as to what that might be suggesting. But it's different. But one of the key things to look here is that actually one group from the women, they worry about keeping on, keeping on. Doing the housekeeping, making sure they do everything with the family, doing the activities they're supposed to do. Roles and responsibilities. The men are looking at a completely different role and responsibility <laughs> as causing them anxiety. Now, you can see, if you look at what the anxiety levels, you can see why then, if you go back to this board from here, why women then would have lower scores in terms of emotion, sleep, energy. Because if they were anticipating their anxieties were around keeping on, keeping on, then it is going to be, I don't feel like I'm emotionally in control. I don't feel like I've got enough energy. I don't think I'm sleeping enough. I'm feeling too much pain. I'm not as mobile as I was. Those things are not about your sexual lifestyle. They're about your everyday. And again, it's about what we prioritise for ourselves, what we prioritise is important, and how we measure our well-being in that scenario. The title you may recognise from Bell Hooks. Bell Hooks, great black female writer, ex-slave who wrote a book, Ain't I a Woman?, which caused great delight in the women's movement because it was a challenge to white feminists. Because her challenge, as many of the black women of the time was, I'm happy to stand on this feminist platform, but don't for a moment assume that we are all the same as women fighting the same battle. As Baby Moore Campbell said, your blues ain't like mine. And this is a quote from Olive Schreiner, which is actually from the quotable African women, who was a really good South African writer. And what she wrote, which always makes me kind of laugh, it's, it's delightful to be a woman, but every man thanks the Lord devoutly that he isn't one. And it's, that's important too, because we walk a balance of good health, which is a balance of envy, and also a balance of, I'm glad it's not me, in the same way. And that's very similar to your position as a woman in the family. Certainly for me, as the head of the household, it's like, well, you're always in charge, it's always down to you, but equally, I'm glad it's you and not me. And that is the life that we walk. And we need to recognise that. In a lot of the things that I've talked about so far, I've mentioned wider determinants. It's not as simple as saying, because, it's not because you're a black woman or because you're an Asian woman or because you're a white woman that you are in the situation. That's one of the complicating or contextual factors. I've mentioned quite a lot of wider determinants so far. We've talked about education, we've talked about poverty, we've talked about where you live, we've talked about position in family. All those things 
Create the context in which you live your health. So, even taking all those things into account, we have to ask how much is that, does that make the case to say it's not our fault? When we look at it, women's health status varies greatly depending on economic class, race, ethnicity, education and home country. However, if we have similar women in the same contextual area, black women still come out worse. That's a two-layered investigation we need to think about. So the strong relationship between minority status and poverty clouds the issue. A lot of people talk about the fact it's really not, is it an issue of race and ethnicity or culture, or is it an issue of economy and poverty? But often the choices we make reduce or optimise our health chances within where, from where we are. And that's got to be the case, because if you look at people in the same economic or educational band, there's still a, dis a discrepancy. There is still an inequality, which means that black and minority women are likely to be worse. So we do need to question that. We cannot always automatically say it's poverty what done it. It's again, it's well-researched to show the more children you have has an impact on your life, and that's even if you don't live in Afghanistan or Haiti. It has an impact on your life and well-being. It's not all bad, it's not all good, but it does impact. Women with more education have fewer children. That might be choice, that might be time to do it, they may be doing other things, it could be a whole range of reasons. But even when you look at the same economic status that happens... So women more education have fewer children than women with less education. So again, economy on its own cannot answer that question if you're looking at the same groups of people. I think in summary, what I'm trying to say is knowledge is power. With all the things that knowledge is power, it gives us the tools to do something about the health or to make choices. But it's only power when we're given an opportunity to use it. The opportunities for the women in Afghanistan were different to the opportunities of women in Haiti, to the women in Colchester, to the women in other parts of the world. But even with that opportunity here in the UK, black women are fearing worse. So there's a question about with the opportunity, do we actually use the opportunity that we have? So it's only power if we've got the opportunity and we do so. Coming towards the end now. When I loved myself enough, I began leaving what wasn't healthy. That meant people, jobs, my own beliefs and habits, and anything that kept me small. My judgment, that's my own judgment, called it disloyal. Now I see it is self-loving. And that's where Macmillan ends of hers. So, are we sick and tired? And how sick and tired are we? The points I want you to take with you and we can move on to talk about that I've said so far. Are we sick and tired of the fact that black women are more likely to go without food, shelter and warmth for their children? At the same time, they'll go any distance to support a friend who is frightened and cheer the loudest when that friend succeeds. That's who we are. We also ignore the pain and discomfort that we feel. Tomorrow I'll be better. 
That's our mantra that we often speak. So in that scenario, black and minority ethnic women's health continues to be the worst, irrespective of economy, education or location. I have to ask myself, are we truly victims of circumstance in that scenario? Really? I just want to read for you, as we finish, the last bit, the introduction from um, Macmillan's book, When I Loved Myself Enough. For many years, I lived with a guarded heart. I did not know how to extend love and compassion to myself. In my 40th year, that began changing. As I grew to love all of who I am, life started, changing in beautiful and mysterious ways. My heart softened and I began to see through very different eyes. My commitment to follow this calling grew strong and in the process, a divine intelligence came to guide my life. I believe this ever-present resonance is grace and is available to us all. For the past 12 years, I have been learning to recognise and accept this gift. So cultivating love and compassion for myself made it possible. Yours will look different, but I do hope mine give voice to a hunger that you may share. Thank you very much for your time.